Welcome to the Unnamed Adventures Podcast. We're doing a five-part series where each episode is recorded while we were in Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. This is part five of five. Episode 25, The Shoemaker. One of the most commonly practiced trades in the 18th century Virginia was shoemaking. Techniques were rediscovered in the study of 18th century shoes and evidence in the Shoes Apprenticeship Program. What you're looking at, what may be coming around to you, are the more typical men's shoes for the 1760s and 1770s. That's what we've got hung up in here as well. These were a mass-produced product. They were widely available in Williamsburg. There were six or seven shoe shops in the city. Now, two or three of them made women's shoes. We only do men's. It was a distinction within the trade. You learned one or the other, really. Women's shoes were very different in terms of their materials and their construction techniques, so it made a lot of sense to split the trade up but there was no shortage of either type here in the town. Of the six or seven shops, two or three made women's shoes. Above and beyond that, you've got merchants importing shoes from overseas, and probably 24 merchants, lots of men's and women's shoes coming in there, and lots of children's shoes coming there as well. So not a hard thing to come by uh, 200 years ago here in town. Uh, something that, if you have an easy time buying shoes now, you would have had an easy time buying shoes 200 years ago. The average sizes haven't really changed much from then to now. And if you have a challenging time now, maybe you feel like me and you've got a really long foot or you've got a really wide or narrow, just an odd sizing combination, 200 years ago was going to be easier. While you couldn't walk into a shop and just buy it, like I wear a 15, you can't really walk into a store now and buy a 15. Couldn't have walked into a shop 200 years ago and bought a 15 off the rack either. It's not a common size. But a shop like this is going to have a size 15 wouldn't last and be able to make it for you. And because shoemakers were paid per pair, not by the hour, hence all the mass production, when they have to make something custom, no matter what the size is, it's done fast. Because you got to just keep rolling out everything you can. So within 24 hours, you can get custom-made shoes. And yeah, in a 15, you're probably going to have to pay a little bit more. More materials go into it, it's going to cost a bit more. But that's, you know, just proportionate to the amount of expended uh, material on it. So it's a, a pretty small cost hike. So what are all those things hanging right there? These are uppers. And they would have been sewn to, you know, to the top of the shoe. They would have been sewn up prior or ahead of time. When you're making shoes and getting paid by the pair, anything that speeds up the, your ability to finish that pair of shoes is pretty critical. And this is just like you know kitchens today where you've got people that just prep vegetables so that the line cooks can get the, the dishes made fast. 200 years ago, they were doing the same thing in here. You would have the probably owner of the shop cutting out all of the pieces. Now they wanna do that because they probably have the best eye for it, the best sense of patterning and layout, they also have the most invested in not wasting anything. Once the parts are cut out, the uppers, and there's three piece for one upper, so six pieces ultimately for a pair, they have to be sewn together. The most efficient way to cut them is in multiple pieces rather than one piece for the back. Sewing them together is called closing. It was usually farmed out. A lot of women worked as shoe closers. It was a way to earn additional income for a family while working from home because you know, 
running a household is was Andy's like full time job, but doesn't pay. So having the ability to bring additional income into the family was very important, especially in urban areas. So you see a lot of women doing that. Kids, you know, the the children of shoemakers are also likely learning how to close shoe uppers to help out um, both the family and the business. Whether they're, you know, they're the the son or daughter of a master shoemaker who owns a business or just a shoemaker working in that business. Mm -hmm. With the uppers closed, you can very quickly put together these bundles of parts that are the day's work for a good experienced shoemaker. From this point, with the uppers already sewn together and the other parts roughly cut, it is about 10 to 12 hours to finish it. So how do they cut the soles then? The soles are cut out of the bigger pieces behind you. You just use a sharp knife. You cut them into what we call ranges, a strip like this. And if you cut a range in half, you should have a pair of outsoles. So once that's cut, when you go to actually put the sole together, you get those rough cut pieces wet, then you tack them onto the last. The inner sole is the first thing that's tacked to the last, and then once it's dry, you trim it right to the shape of the last. So the wooden form ultimately dictates how you cut the sole. Um, just as once the outsole is stitched on, the tolerance that you want around the sewing uh, is going to dictate where you're cutting it. And what you're using to cut it is just a very sharp knife. So what is this material? It's ox or bull hide. So it comes off an old heavy animal, probably 12 to 15 years old, weighing over a thousand pounds. It's going to give you a very stiff, stout piece of it. Hmm. What kind of stitching did you use? Like a flex? or a Yeah, both actually. Uh, flax for the finer sewing. Mm -hmm. So uppers are sewn with flax threads. Mm -hmm. So outer soles, inner soles are some of the hemp threads. Hemp is naturally a bit more rock resistant. And you make a thicker thread for the soles, make a thinner thread for the others. Because we're drawing out that flax or that hemp um, off a, a, a spool of single ply thread. And while the trade term for what we're putting together to sew the shoes with is threads, um, a more descriptive term would be cord. You draw out a length that you want and then you do it again and again until you get a number of plies. So say with flax for uppers, usually three three strands of thread that you taper the ends on and coat pine pitch and pine rosin, which makes it rot resistant and sticky and allows you to twist it into a cord. With the tapered ends, you can twist uh, boar's bristles on the end of the thread and pass that around. And that bristle on each end is what you're going to use to get the thread through the hole that you'll cut in the letter with an awl. And then you pass through from both sides, which allows you to tie an overhand knot as you make the stitch, making a very strong seam, much stronger than a sewing machine. So what are these different type of shoes? Like, are these... we got, you know, the variety of what we can make here. This is a very simple slipper. Um, takes maybe a good make, a maker, a good maker about four hours to put these together. Very simple. And something you'd likely be working on at the same time you're working on a more uh, complete pair of shoes. Because at the end of the day, if you finish this and the pair of shoes, because you trade back and forth as something's drying, you work on the other, you get two things done. The pages went up. So simple slippers, high-end slipper. Um, just for wearing in the house, but a lot more work goes into this, clearly. This is more expensive than a lot of the shoes that are on the then you've got 
you know, lightweight, simple shoes like this. Well, not simple, but lightweight and flexible. It's a good dancing shoe. Now, this is a pretty basic style. It's not very refined. It's stout leather. So that might be a sport shoe for something. If we put a nicer upper on it, it would be a dress dancing shoe. And that's the cool thing about all this. You can take different types of uppers, different sole constructions, and combine to get different styles, excuse me, and qualities and shoes, whatever your customer is looking for. We've got our most, you know, basic pair of shoes, men's common shoe, nothing special at the time, just a good solid shoe. Um, this is the one that takes about 10 to 12 hours to make, most men. Then we've got the high-end stuff. Like, it's pretty shop-worn, but this is a veal skin upper. It's a really finely made men's dress shoe. And it actually has an overshoe to protect it. Hmm. The streets here weren't paved. No sidewalks. Uh, no cobblestones. It was just dirt. So protecting better shoes was often something somebody might choose to do. Then we've got our boots, our half boots, which are a little bit, can be utilitarian, can also be kind of high-end field boots. Uh, and then very top of the line riding boots, which are the most expensive thing in the shop. Yes? What is she doing now? She's getting ready to sharpen a knife, and she's been working on uh, a heel for a shoe that she's making. So the, working with the thick leather, the knives can get dull pretty quickly, and a dull tool is a dangerous tool. So we sharpen our knives regularly. Now we also cut towards ourselves, which you know, they're going to tell you not to do, and that's good advice. When you know what you're doing and you're using a sharp knife, you actually have more control when you cut towards yourself. You don't put as much pressure and force behind the blade. You can guide its path a lot more. So we, and we have specialty aprons with heavier chest pieces so that we have more stopping power over our bargains. Now, in this shop, do you guys repair or fix shoes that people wear their costumes with? Yes. We, oh, okay. we make shoes for the staff here. We fix what we make. Wow. But we're the only shop in town, so we have to. 200 years ago, a shoemaker is not going to want to fix an old pair of shoes because it does not pay very well. And it can be time consuming and dirty. Just like fixing a house today, you start pulling stuff apart, thinking it's a small job, and it turns into a Very huge job. job. <laughs> so there were cobblers that you would take your shoes to to get them repaired. And if you were doing that, if you were getting your shoes fixed maybe every six months, you could get two or three years out of a single pair of shoes. It was, it was something, and it was cheap, so it was something that a lot of people chose to do. How about the buckles? Like, do you put on the buckles the finished shoes here, or do you farm that out? You do that. Okay. That's a consumer's thing. Oh, interesting. Um, they're interchangeable. If you own five or six pairs of shoes, you probably have two or three pairs of shoe buckles. Um, you can swap them whenever you like, and you bought them other places. So when you buy new shoes, you're not having to buy a new pair of shoes. But you put the eyelets in here, right? Those... There are no eyelets. The, the buckles have sharp tines on them. So all you have to do is pull that into the strap. It's something that you can, these would have been forged steel in the 18th century. You can do it yourself very, very easily. Um, Laces were out of fashion, the exception being on half boots. Um, so yeah, you buy a pair of half boots, they're going to have the holes on them, they're going to have laces on them when they leave the shop. Sometimes you see people taking older worn out shoes, like what I've got on, and cutting those worn out buckle straps off and putting a simple lace uh, system on. Uh, these shoes are five years old, so they were good candidates for that. Other times you may find people who cannot afford shoe buckles lacing up a pair of shoes that were intended to buckle close, and often they won't even cut the straps off, they'll just tuck them back or, or something. 
Was there a quality difference versus domestic versus imported? There may have been, kids? but 200 years on, it's difficult to say. I mean, we can't go and look at the archaeological collections here and tell you English, American, because it's the same techniques, it's the same styles. Yeah. Even a locally made shoe was likely using English imported leather um, because it was the top quality that you could get at a reasonable price. So it's really difficult to say. Some people thought that maybe local made shoes were higher quality. You're going to probably run into the people that buy them from you a little bit more often. Um, whereas if you're buying an imported shoe, you're never going to need that shoe made. Ever. Okay. So it's, it's really hard to say. Okay. Well, yeah. How would you take it off? We have to go How do we take it off? How would you take it off for the, like, the buckle, if there's the buckle? Oh, well, they just, I, mean, I don't have them, but with the buckle hooked in, you just unbuckle. So there's the shoe closed. Your foot would be inside that. With the buckle on there. And it holds it nice and tight around your foot. And then when you want to take it off, you just... So it already had the hole in it. This one did, because it's our demo model. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, they wouldn't have had, actually had the holes in it. The because person it's gonna the bottom. Yeah. You set your own holes in. Oh, yeah. Or the buckle sets its own holes in. Um. And as the leather stretches, you can reset them. You can put multiple different sets of holes on one pair of shoes. So the leather has a lot of density, and it will stand up to that. So you can change buckles from shoe to shoe. Tailors clothe everyone. Okay. People don't make their own clothes. The farmer's wife out in the, out in the country doesn't make clothing for everyone. No one's going to never say never, never say always. But it's totally different than what we were taught. Weren't we all brought up with the idea? It's still taught in Virginia State curriculum today. That back then, Paul works out in the field or at his trade while Mark cooked, cleaned, took care of children, made clothing for everyone. That is not a common narrative for the 18th century. It's a 19th century and 20th century narrative, and we can't push it back. There's a lot of things that makes that possible in the 19th century that don't exist in the 18th century and prior. Plowing technology, stoves, refrigeration, canning, canned vegetables, um, and other canned fruit and vegetables, um, commercial patterns, manuals you could purchase, ghastly lamps, electric lights, selling machines. All of those things come about in the 19th century, as well as just society's expectation that that be something that you really should do. In the 18th century, the idea is coming around, but it's not actually a reality. Does that does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I, I know it's pulling away from what we were all taught and what we might expect. A narrative that's created in the 1820s, 1830s of kind of these self-sufficient homesteaders. It's a romantic notion rather than a historical one. It's based on little bits and little nuggets, but it's not actually if you like what you've heard please share our podcast with your friends and family wherever and however you listen to your podcast feel free to subscribe to our channel and write us a review too you can submit questions that you want answered through our website at www.unnamedadventures.com backslash podcast or catch us on all social media platforms